Not Us. I'm your host, Sarah Ackerman. In this episode covering uniquely American problems, we're talking about the topic of medical debt. Who has it? Why is it an issue? And what can we do about it? Folks in the U.S. owe around $195 billion with a B in medical debt. 16 million people have over $1,000 in medical debt, and over 3 million people owe over $10,000 in medical debt. I know that's a lot of numbers to process, but just know it's a big group of people that owe a decent chunk of change. While we'll hear in this episode that this kind of debt is treated differently than, say, overdue credit card debt, it's still a burden that can negatively impact a variety of financial decisions. I had the chance to chat with Jack Daly, attorney for the Legal Aid Society of San Diego, to see how he and his team tackle this issue day in and day out. So how did you get involved with health consumer advocacy? Yeah, so I came to this uh, really to all legal work kind of not by happens chance, I would say. I, I had graduated undergrad and, and uh, with a political science and economics degree and wasn't quite sure what that was going to look like. And while I was figuring out what I wanted to do, I thought I'm going to go volunteer at the homeless shelter and just spoon soup, you know, into a, into a bowl for folks, you know, because I had probably played too many video games and, and eaten enough Cheetos to kill a horse. So I figured I'd better do something more productive with my time. And it was this very aha moment when I walked into the homeless shelter right in the lobby was uh, a legal aid office and a sign. And I certainly had been raised in a household that understood social justice and um, social justice themes and was aware of legal services, but for some reason never made that connection. And that really kind of ignited my passion and my interest in pursuing a legal career from the get-go. So fast forward, I started in homeless legal services as a volunteer, and that, and that translated into a job working at the Legal Aid Society of San Diego within a new health advocacy unit that they started in early 1999. As a, I was a non-attorney advocate. I worked on the hotline and helped uh, screen people for our services and then helped them work through their health advocacy concerns or their health you know, access concerns. And, you know, just really fell in love with the work and the agency and saw my career path laid out in front of me. I went to law school and the rest is history. So, and then really have consistently worked in legal aid, with Legal Aid Society of San Diego since um, doing this work. Oh, it's amazing. Um, it's got to feel good to have that kind of tenure at a place to see, like, see the good things happen. And it's not just a couple of years where it's just like, ah, I tried and left. Instead, it's like, this is this incredible breadth of work we've been able to accomplish together. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and especially in the world of health, well, specifically within the agency, I've been able to see the agency grow, which has been marvelous. And I think I've held every single uh, employment classification in the agency. I've worked in every role uh, in the agency. And so really have grown up both professionally uh, and as an individual in the agency. But even within the health world came in when some of the foundations of uh, health reform were getting going um, at a very basic level and, you know, was able to ride through a number of of really participating in a number of really compelling changes in our health system, Um, none greater than the implementation of the Affordable Care Act in 2010, of course, but a lot of smaller 
projects and reform efforts in the state of California that occurred prior to that that really set the stage for that process. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, it has been a very compelling and interesting ride throughout this process. So this might be a big ask, but like, what do you wish people knew more about health consumer advocacy as a whole? One, that we exist. <laughs> <laughs> Good starting point. <laughs> I feel, I feel when people ask me what I do, sometimes I have to start very broad and say, first of all, I'm an attorney and an advocate. I work at a nonprofit. And then I start narrowing down and people say, oh, I guess I never thought of that. I never understood that that is something that exists. And, um, but beyond that, just awareness that we are here as a source of support to assist people and navigate this wonderfully complex or terribly complex system, however you want to frame it. I think, it, you know, also to put out there that it's just, it's incredibly challenging and gratifying work. Everyone in their life is going to have some interaction with the health system in our, in our country. And more often than not, they're going to be left with question marks or frustration or challenges. And it's, it's really gratifying to be a part of that solution that helps educate folks and empower folks and even then represent folks, navigate some of those, those challenges. So what is the future that Legal Aid Society of San Diego is trying to create? Yeah, so I think from a very, you know, uh, high level, we, our goal is to make sure that, I mean, we're, we're in San Diego, so we're really focused on the San Diegans and the, uh, our, our county and, and folks in our community. So we really want to ensure everyone can enjoy and experience equity and equality and really can live their best lives and thrive in our community. And we find that very often folks can't do that without access to justice, access to high quality and accessible legal services. And so just from a very high level, that's our goal. Within our role of you know, being a health consumer advocate, and it's, it's a little, so within the Legal Aid Society of San Diego, I, I'm a part of the uh, health law team, which is called the Consumer Center for Health Education and Advocacy. It's kind of a mouthful of a name, but we really wanted to, to impart <laughs> uh, some elements of our work that are, are really viable to our mission. One, that we're consumer driven. We've always, we were founded really out of consumer interest. And, and two, um, we seek to empower folks as well as advocate for them. The vision that we have for San Diego is that everyone can access the services they need and they have access to comprehensive coverage. And to the extent that there's barriers that those can be overcome on an individual and on a system level. And I think that's a really important nexus that we help fill in the community, drawing down those lessons from the work that we do on the individual level and help to translate that into systemic impact so that you know maybe the few thousand people we help, that's certainly helpful to those individuals, but we're translating those lessons learned to broader system impact that can impact potentially millions and, and help potentially millions, uh, not only in San Diego, but across the state. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. So what barriers are kind of getting in the way of that? Do you find that folks aren't fully aware that they have a need to reach out? Are they, I don't want to say, are they scared to reach out that I don't know if fear necessarily plays a role, but what do you see as reasons why people aren't getting the help they need? I mean, I can think of this in, in a couple of different ways, um, at a very base level, at the, the lower level, you know, people are, are exactly that. They're not aware of their rights and options to dispute decisions made about their coverage or their access to care needs. 
And I think at a, at a very individual level, to the extent that we are there to support folks and that we're free and that we're qualified. And yes, we are attorneys. Many folks will ask me, like, well, you're a, a nonprofit attorney. How does that work? You, you're not a real attorney. And I always, <laughs> I take no offense to that. I just say, yeah, I'm a real attorney. <laughs> I, I swear, I took the same bar as everybody else. It's, it's okay. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, you know, I think we work hard to kind of close that, that knowledge gap. There was actually a, the state bar put out a study a couple of years called the justice gap. And, it, and one of the central findings were that Californians often do not identify their issues and their challenges. Uh, many of these, which are indicators or social determinants of health, it's a well-treaded term, but they don't conceive of those issues as legal issues or legal problems that we can help with or that they can access legal services to support. So I think that's a central challenge to communicating with consumers and individuals in our community about the availability of our services, but especially within the context of health. It's such a terribly complex system, which I think comes from a, uh, really the, the foundation of our healthcare system is based on this, this century old principle of health is a commodity like anything else, you know, and mm -hmm. Because of that, uh, there's a, uh, it has created certain inequities and inefficiencies in our system from which at the tail end, consumers often suffer the consequences. And I think because it is such a, over the maybe the last 70 years, there's been such a, so many policies driven at trying to address those fundamental inefficiencies and inequities, you know, through government-sponsored healthcare programs and policies to reduce costs and subsidize healthcare, all wonderful programs, and they have expanded access to care, but it's, it's created these patchwork approaches, which have these gaps and cracks between them, or which people fall. And, and I think, I think that's where health consumer advocacy operates, and serves consumers in that in that really complex system. It's not going to be the folks that have the resources, that have the means, that have the knowledge or like, I don't want to say skills, but like the background to navigate the system that, that are going to fall through the cracks. Like it's going to be the folks that are the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, the most disadvantaged. It's not easy to figure out, even when you get a bill from just going to the doctor for like a regular checkup and all of a sudden you owe, like there's the the analogy of the $200 Band-Aid and it's like, you just charge me, to, why? And then it's a uh, kind of the... I know I've at least experienced this where like, you get the bill and you're like, I, there's nothing I can do. Like I owe this, I guess. And then that's where it's helpful to have assistance to be like, is this, are they, do I? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple layers to, to that, the point you made, but it, it, at a base level, it's one of the really uh, wonderful aspects of health consumer advocacy and this as an issue. Healthcare is universal and it, it impacts everyone. And there's not one individual in our country that will not interact with the healthcare system at some point. And as I said, have questions or concerns, right? And however, how that lands, how that impacts of that expense lands will depend on kind of, like you noted, your insight and your level of your kind of skill or knowledge of how to assert yourself in that system. And as well as just the financial means to absorb some of that expense. I think that is a, a significant point. Folks that have, you know, middle to low income will be more impacted than folks that can absorb it. And I think, I think that, I think what you've hit on themes that are really universal. We, 
medical debt is a huge problem. It is consistently makes up a third of all of our access to care related issues we work on in our, in our work. And that's with the benefit of significant federal and state legislation over the last two decades that have worked to reduce the impact of medical debt and add protections, we are still seeing significant problems and related to medical debt. The point about it landing differently, though, is important. Medical debts, your ability to kind of respond to those situations can be impacted by all those factors we discuss. And also, too, important to note, just your fatigue with the system can become a factor as well. If you have a chronic condition and you are continually interacting with the system, there can be become this point of like, okay, it's just another medical bill. Throw it on the stack. I just, I can't look at it. I can't, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand how it was calculated and I'm not sure I can pay for it. And so there's a sense that these things can be ignored. So that, that can often lead folks to trouble. I saw a recent uh, SIP survey suggesting that folks in the United States owe around $195 billion, with a B, in medical debt, which is an absurd number that I can't even fathom. And it went on to say 6% of adults owe over $1,000, which that's not an, a small amount of money. And then at least 1% of adults owe more than 10000 which to your point of just kind of being like, it, it, it's very easy to give up of just... I can't pay that, so I'm either going to ignore it or I just all of the things that have to go into play to um, mentally, the weight of that debt uh, just feels insurmountable. How is medical debt treated? Is it treated any differently than other debt? And what can folks do? Yes, it is. Legally, uh, I would say generally medical debt is treated more favorably in a, in a, in a couple different ways uh, in terms of how the allowable deductions in your taxes it's also treated more favorably in credit reporting. So if you have an existing medical debt, when it's reported to the reporting agencies, it's not as big of a mark on your credit report as, say, credit debt or other debts. There's a CFBP, a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, study that had, had indicated that medical collection efforts are less predictive of, of a future payment or repayment risk than other types of collection or payment history problems on, on loans. And so when creditors look at your credit reports and see medical debt, especially given the prevalence of medical debt in this country, it's less of a mark necessarily on that person's credit history. Further, this in state law in California, medical debt has definitely been treated more favorably in some ways. SB 1200 passed this year, and it's going to limit the interest rate that accrues on medical debt judgments to 5%. Um, and so that cap is going to be a, a significant help to avoid these rampant fees and, and interest that accrue on outstanding medical debt judgments. That's just one small example of how those are treated differently. And then I think also, too, just generally in public opinion and even politically, I think folks, again, because it's so prevalent, everyone's dealt with it at some point there's a little bit more understanding and, and some more empathy that comes along with medical debt as opposed to other types of credit card debt where folks, uh, you know, right or wrong, are often more judgmental of those that have maybe credit card debt because it, some, there's a level of judgment that this is a view, uh, 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 some form of excess that the person allowed themselves to get into, which very often is not the case. It's a matter of, you know, just meeting basic necessity of life. 
but medical debt kind of has this understanding that, well, hey, uh, you know, there was an emergency and you needed to take care of yourself. And so I think it has some special place in our culture. I feel like that 5% cap also kind of reconfirms that I feel like the state of California is just kind of living in the future in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, so that's that's amazing. I didn't know that. That's great. I hope more states take measures to do that since that is interest can be su- like more of a obviously more of a burden than the actual debt itself, which is insane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and especially as it if collections end up going to, you know, to court and there's a judgment, you know, piled under that, that total amount you owe is also attorney's fees, fines and other uh, penalties already. So to then to be further punished by excessive interest rates on those judgment debts is, is really devastating. So yeah, it's, it's a great move in the right direction, uh, certainly in, in support of those efforts. So what sort of legal protections do people have when it comes to medical debt that they might not be aware of? Yeah, so I think at a very core level, because I think part of our goals, <laughs> our goal as advocates is to ensure that people have coverage in the first place. Um, there are so many varieties of sources of coverage finding the right program that you may qualify for and take advantage of is is important. So, you know, one, trying to understand if someone has an opportunity to have that service covered by either their existing coverage or a new coverage for which you may be able to uh, request a retroactive coverage um, decision to to cover that particular um, service. So, for example, in the Medicaid program in California, it enables you to apply for coverage after the fact and reach back 90 days and say, hey, I've got medical bills in the last 90 days that I need to um, have covered. And if you qualify for the Medicaid program here in California, then you can have those services potentially covered. So that's right off the bat, just understanding, is there some option to have it covered? If your coverage denied you, then understanding that you have rights to appeal, you have rights to file likely both internal and external appeals to dispute those coverage denials and get assistance from us, from folks like us out in the community providing these health consumer advocacy services. So I I haven't mentioned this, but Legal Aid Society of San Diego is part of a, a network called the Health Consumer Alliance. We're a network of direct service providers that cover all 58 counties in California, provide statewide services for free, to folks in California that are having these types of challenges. And so when folks face these types of coverage denials, we can be relied on to jump in and provide advice and even representation to help negotiate and navigate with either providers or plans or other coverage sources. Other protections purely in the medical debt and billing world come from, again, both state and federal law in services that are, or expenses that are incurred at hospitals in California have a number of different protections. Those hospitals have to provide some level of financial assistance, which can be either full or partial discounts to patients who have income under 400% of the federal poverty level. So, you know, kind of mid to low income folks may be able to take advantage of that financial assistance program. You know, for one person example, in 2022, that 400% of the poverty level is about $54,000. So, not an insignificant amount for folks um, that may encounter medical expenses at hospitals. And they hospitals often will even provide partial discounts to folks, even at higher incomes. You know, if you're facing a hospital bill, in addition to asking for charity care or financial assistance um, relief, 
you can also negotiate on a case-by-case basis with the hospital on those expenses and debts. And so, you know, when in doubt, ask for a discount, you know, be persistent, you know, explain what you can afford to pay and what you can't afford to pay. And you can often negotiate an installment payment where otherwise you would have believed that you have to come up with this exorbitant amount of funds um, all at once. So often when folks are in that billing cycle and the cases, uh, you know, the, the collection effort has moved on from a provider to a collection agency, Soon thereafter, if you're not able to work something out with the collection agency, then they'll move to pursue a litigation or a collection case against you in court. What's really shocking about that is about, I think the statistic is about 70% of all of those collection efforts go to default judgment, meaning collection agency uh, and attorneys for collection agencies file suit for an un, you know for an unpaid debt. Um, maybe it's a debt that they were contracted by the provider to pay for or to collect rather, or maybe it was a debt that they purchased outright from another, another debt collector. And that's something that goes on often and they file suit, uh, 70% of the time that's going to go to a default judgment where the, uh, the patient, uh, doesn't show up in court to dispute it. And thus the court is, is forced to issue a default judgment in enabling that collector to now pursue other forms of levy and and collection efforts against that individual. And so, you know, it's important for folks to know that even if they're in that situation, if they learn that they're being sued, one, there is legal support out there at legal aid programs throughout the state. And and also that even if they do learn that there was a final judgment against them, that's not the end of the case. There's a lot of things that can be done to negotiate with those debt collection agencies to return to court and set aside the, the judgment. Often there's opportunities to challenge on procedural basis that the you know the collection agency failed to issue proper notice of the hearing and or other defects in the case. And so there certainly are more options. And there's also even on that, the ability of the collection agency to then enforce that judgment is packed with protections for certain folks. Um, so folks that are on social security benefits, um, disability, federal disability benefits have limitations on how those funds can be collected. There's restrictions against bank levies and restrictions on wage garnishments and prohibitions against forcing foreclosures for, for judgment liens, all kind of born out of the idea that medical debt should be treated differently. So there are a number of protections there. It's absolutely wild to hear that like if you are taken to court, if you are being sued for this debt, that there are like, oh, well, you can get off on like a procedural thing. Like, I don't know the average person that would know to be like, oh, that's an avenue that I need to pursue. I feel like everyone needs to have like a, a well, either go to a like a legal aid or have a friend that went to law school that you can just text constantly to be like, hey, quick question. So I'm in this pickle. Uh, please be well-versed on every aspect of the law. And um, what do I do? Because that that is such an undue burden on a um, and on an average citizen to know that that's even an option. No, I, I think that's right. And it's such an information imbalance when someone. I mean, let's let's ratchet it back. When someone receives the medical bill itself, or they receive an explanation of benefits from their plan or their coverage, there's such a, an information gap that uh, folks face in trying to understand whether that bill is correct or not, whether when it says your responsibility and it indicates a a number and uh, typically with many 
decimal spaces there, um, you know, whether or not that's correct or not. And what that cost or that uh, that bill is comprised of, I think that's that's really frustrating to folks because it's, it is such a complex and confusing system. And they're, they're often left unsure of what whether or not what they're being billed is is correct or not. Flash forward to any form of a collection effort, which can be very intimidating. Um, there's our number, there are a number of protections for how collection agencies can interact with consumers, and I think those at times are violated. We've had we have had many cases in which consumers are being intimidated at work uh, regarding debts their family members are being called about their own personal debts that are being collected. And each of these is a violation of both state and federal debt collection rules, but it still occurs. And so it is, it is super, super important to your point that folks reach out for assistance on these cases when they do receive collection efforts, when they do receive bills that they don't understand, or God forbid that they do receive a summons to uh, indicate a lawsuit has been filed against them they absolutely should be reaching out for legal assistance to better understand what their options are at that point and to make sure that they're protecting their possible arguments and relief available to them because these are very high volume cases. Um, the, the attorneys that bring credit collection cases operate on a, a volume business, um, filing probably thousands and thousands of these cases a year. And so the individual attention to detail, let's say, and compliance with procedural requirements can be lacking at times and can leave it um, their cases open to really basic and straightforward defenses that, but if a consumer doesn't know, they won't, they won't assert them. So it's really important that they reach out for that type of assistance. I feel like when they start to go in that direction and they're about to go against like a, like attorneys are terrifying. I say that with all the respect in the world. <laughs> But there's just such a level of knowledge and it's the law. This isn't just like, oh, I know how to do digital marketing. Come at me. Um, Nothing's going to happen. But like understanding the intricacies of the law and the implications of that is just terrifying. And to walk in without any amount of support or backup or any semblance of knowledge. Oh, that is for folks to go into those situations without any sort of like legal support is just that has to be terrifying. Absolutely. And I mean, layer on top of those concerns, someone that may be English as a second language, they may be an immigrant from a country who politically and from a government interaction point of view, you know, those types of interactions with the government in their home country may be dangerous, right? Like when the government is saying certain things about you know, you have to come to court. <laughs> um, that that can be very intimidating on yeah. a lot of levels for folks if culturally they're new to the country, they're not familiar with the civil legal system, or even if they're, they're not new to the country and they've just had bad interactions with the legal system or are not familiar with the legal system and the, the sources of support out there. So there's a lot of cultural and linguistic factors that also, when layered on, I think can impact some of our more under typically underrepresented communities tenfold. So it's really, it's, it's certainly important that the communication about the availability of these supports is out there, but also too, that the policymakers and the legislatures of the world that are ensuring that these protections continue to take into consideration those particular patients and consumers, folks that don't have that level of, of insight 
and uh, experience interacting with either the healthcare system or the legal system. Since this, these episodes, this series is focusing on like uniquely American problems, taking a step back to like a worldview, are there any countries that get medical debt right? The U.S. is just very special in a lot of different ways. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, there's been a, several studies on this. Medical debt largely is unique to the United States. There's countries with universal health care have little to no medical debt. There's been studies uh, contrasting medical debt in the United States uh, versus Europe. And the percentage of folks in Europe that have unaffordable health care expenses is in the 1% to 2% range, whereas you noted earlier, folks in the U.S. are between the 6 to 7% range and climbing. So it is a uniquely uh, American experience and something common to the United States. In countries that don't have developed healthcare, public health care systems, you know, medical debt does exist, certainly, but it exists for those that have the means to pay for it because there are, in some countries, in, there are not requirements for healthcare to be delivered as there are in the United States. There's a federal law in the United States which indicates that if you show up at the emergency room and you have an emergent medical need, that the hospital in that, and the emergency department has to help you, has to stabilize you. And that creates this dynamic of medical debt um, at the most basic level. And those standards and those requirements aren't as present in some other countries in the world. And so uh, thereby, uh, you, it's, it's a pay-as-you-go type model. And so the, the concept of medical debt isn't as prevalent. Interesting. So like kind of the big question, is there any amount of individual action people can take to advance health consumer advocacy? So not just asking for support when they need it, but just as a larger, as a larger action. Yeah, I think, I think it's important for folks to be informed about, I mean, we're, we're near election time. So I just think generally being informed about where their representatives stand on health policy-related issues in terms of coverage, expanding coverage, expanding opportunities for coverage, protections for medical debt, uh, I would say uh, protections for distinct populations that have medical service needs. And we focus, we have a whole initiative in uh, Health Consumer Alliance on ensuring access to gender-affirming health care and health care for the LGBTQ population generally and ensuring that folks don't experience discrimination in health settings from that community. Um, and so I think it's important that folks understand where their representatives stand on those issues. And, you know, and then on a much more kind of personal level, just I think we chatted about this a bit earlier, but just, you know, don't ignore decisions about um, your own health care, your own health care coverage, your own ac access to care needs, or the expenses or the bills that come from health care. You know, folks have to be inquisitive. They have to ask questions. They have to be a squeaky wheel and they have to seek help. And it seems intimidating at times and it can seem exhausting. You may have to call multiple sources for help. But I think folks have to really push back, ask questions and, and reach out for help and try to educate themselves about what their options are. Yeah. Those all seem like reasonable things, but terrifying at the same time, which is a really nice Venn diagram. Absolutely. It, it is not. And I really want to kind of acknowledge and reiterate the amount of fatigue that occurs for folks, because not only may you be dealing with, a, you know, recuperating from a 
a medical procedure, an accident, or a chronic condition that you uh, may have signs and symptoms from that make it difficult to kind of navigate some of these systems. Just from a physical health point of view, from a mental health point of view, this, this can be daunting. And so it is really important to know that there are protections out there and there's sources of support out there, like our offices and other offices like ours um, throughout the state and throughout the nation. There are sources of support. So folks really do need to, you know, especially if they're feeling overwhelmed by it, don't feel like you're alone in this process and reach out for help. So it sounds like as much as it is overwhelming and hard to be on the consumer side of it and to be receiving those bills and not knowing what to do, as someone who this is your line of work that can't it can't be the, I don't say it can't be the easiest, but it, it's got to be heartwarming, but hard. How do you take care of yourself? How do you balance? How are you able to turn it off at the end of the day and like go out and live a normal life? Like what are your skills and abilities to like cope and balance? Yeah, no, I think that's important. We are after all healthcare advocates. And so we are um, working to support a healthy community and we're part of that community. And so I think that's important. I think Surrounding yourself in a workplace and in a firm and an agency that has an appropriate culture that values that balance is really important. Also takes into consideration the secondary trauma that can, can result from being a source of support to folks in crisis. You know, I always like to say that people don't reach out to us on our hotline because things are going hunky-dory with their access to healthcare, right? They, they're reaching out because something is going horrifically wrong. They've probably called three or four other places before reaching out to us or finding us. And that can be really frustrating. And and so our staff are routinely kind of absorbing (laughs) some of that frustration. So it is really important to ensure we as as advocates are monitoring our own our own health and our stability to because it's important so that we can keep doing this work. And so it is making sure you're in a place that is values that balance and and yeah, being being healthy and having a good, you know, home life and family life and having those opportunities to to release and, you know, be be goofy outside of this very serious workplace, you know, that uh, is often can mean the difference be, uh, between access to life saving services for folks at times. So that is an important task for us. Is there any advice you would give to your younger self, like as you were entering in this field? Is there anything you know now that back when you started, you wish you would have known? Yeah, um, it's, it's a great question because we, we train law students and new attorneys all the time. And I came out of law school full of, um, excuse my French, uh, piss and vinegar. I was just, you know, bloodthirsty for the adversarial process and for getting into court and dressing someone down on cross-examination and, you know, righting the wrongs of the world. And I think that you know, it, it's it. I think that's common too. I, I see it routinely with law students. They they, they come with this mindset. Um, part of that's probably influenced by court TV, <laughs> but um, you know, I think I think very soon after I was able to to take a deep breath and slow down in this work, I and and learn from mentors in this field that um, you have to bring a sense of empathy and understanding for all involved in this work. Certainly, the consumer most for this consumer, right? But also for the folks across the aisle, the folks, the folks at the other side of the, the negotiating table, the other the folks that are making these decisions, these policy decisions, and, uh, you know, constructing these programs and rules and regulations. Everyone comes to this work well-intended, and 
with the idea that they're going to do something positive. I at least that's my my view. I, I I hope I hold on to that view that everyone is working for some sense of good. And I think understanding that and learning how to balance that carrot and stick approach to advocacy is super important. We work really hard to build relationships with partners in San Diego and across the state. And those partnerships with the different sectors of, of healthcare industry, with the decision makers, will absolutely and very often lead to efficient you know, resolution of challenges uh, that we have on a system level and on an individual case level. So I think that's a really important lesson to understand that while there certainly is a time and place for the stick and for litigation, that is a tool that is, is unique to attorneys in some ways and to the court process. I would say the majority of these decisions are made outside of the courtroom and rightly so, right? I mean, the courtroom is for when there's a break, a breakdown of communication and, um, and there's no ability to resolve the problem otherwise. So, so I think that's, that's been a really important lesson for me um, in, my, in my career. Yeah. So as folks are listening to this, if this is something that they want to help support, how can listeners support legal aid as Society of San Diego or just health consumer advocacy in general? So certainly in their own pursuit of healthcare services, just educating themselves is super important. Asking questions, as I noted, I think that's super important is to not accept uh, the status quo when it comes to their own care. In terms of supporting this, this work, uh, discovering who is doing this work locally is really important. We, we are nonprofit organizations um, that do this work, and we work really hard to resource ourselves well by filling out grant applications and talking to donors and foundations. And it's, it's a significant um, work to do so. And so I think to the extent folks can value or benefit from these services, Certainly supporting them financially is, is great. All of our nonprofits have donation pages and so on, and that's uh, on our websites, and that's certainly important. But I also, too, think, like I said previously, when it comes time to make decisions about how this our, our society is, is ruled and, and governed, um, you know, making a, a decisions in support of the sources of support like this. And, and I think there's, a, a, you know, opportunities on a regular basis to support programs like ours um, through government sources of support and foundation sources of support. So I think that's important, making sure that these programs have, have the support necessary to keep answering the calls and, and helping people. Thank you to our wonderful guests, Jack Daly and the Legal Aid Society of San Diego. Check out the show notes for all of their links and see how you can support their cause. I also want to say thank you to our wonderful editor, Shay Dominguez, and our producing organization, Media Cause, a digital agency specializing in moving missions forward for nonprofits and cause-based organizations. See their impact at mediacause.org. And a final thank you to you, our listeners. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and drop by ifnotus.tv if you have suggestions on guests or topics we should cover in the future. Until next time, remember, change belongs to everyone. Thank you.